Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Getting ready to represent Christ to your world today. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Well, good morning. We still have an extraordinary percentage of the American population that is unemployed. However, those unemployment numbers are improving pretty dramatically. It was Labor Day weekend, and so we were taking a little break from our labors and yet recognizing on this Labor Day weekend that uh, we have an awful lot of neighbors and friends, former co-workers, who are without jobs or looking toward a future that is far less certain in terms of employment stability. Even those who are going back to work are going back to work in a very different way, some of them in very different places, some of them to very different jobs. Um, and so I've been, um, I've been sort of surveying the, the landscape in terms of people reflecting on their unemployment experience or their experience of unemployment. And I came across a, a reporter who was covering unemployment and then was laid off. And this individual's piece on 98 days in unemployment purgatory, you probably know that what caught my attention was the spiritual, was a word that is, has a spiritual connotation, the word purgatory. Um, and so I read this. And I do think that it's helpful for us to hear the stories, to listen to the stories of those who are having a life experience that is um, both unexpected and unwelcome. So there's some life experiences that we have that are unexpected, but they're welcome. Those are surprises and joys. There are other life experiences that we have that are unexpected and they are unwelcome. Unemployment uh, during COVID would be one of those. And so I just want to encourage you today to consider the value of work the purpose of work, um, the joy of work, the provision that God makes for us through work, and to acknowledge that um, one day we will rest from our labors, right? I like to call it a dirt nap, but not everybody appreciates that language. But one day we are going to rest from our labor. And the question is, what works, what deeds will follow us. So God has prepared in advance good deeds for each and every one of us to do. God has actually fully equipped us for the good deeds that he has prepared in advance for us to do, which means you lack nothing. You lack nothing that is necessary to accomplish uh, the good deeds that God has prepared for you today. And so don't allow some system or some naysayer to get in the way of you accomplishing the good deeds that God has set before you to do today, for which God has called you and equipped you and sent you forth fully empowered by the Holy Spirit. So it's Labor Day week. We're going to talk about labor. And let me just encourage us to continue to always labor as unto the Lord. Bill English is going to join me next. We're going to talk about um, unemployment. We're going to talk about some new unemployment benefits 
And we're also going to have a conversation uh, for those of you who are employers to help us better understand this payroll withholding deferment. All right. I know that sounds wonky and weedy, but I promise you, uh, Bill and I are going to bring the spiritual to bear on all of this. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. is joining me now from bibleandbusiness.com. Welcome back, sir. Hey, it's good to be back. All right. So um, bring us up to speed. Uh, unemployment, unemployment benefits. We remember that there was a, uh, an unemployment benefits bump for a period of time. Apparently, there's a new, new bump in benefits. Can you kind of remind us where we've been and then tell us where we are now in terms of all that? Yeah. Yeah, so in the original CARES Act, there was an additional 600 a week of federal unemployment bump over the state's normal 300 to 350 a week. And uh, that ended at the end of July. And so um, now what President Trump has done, because Congress is gridlocked and they can't come to terms between the parties in Congress and with the president, uh, what Trump has done is he's issued an executive order to get another $400 a week to those who are unemployed with $100 of that coming from the state and 300 coming from the federal government. Uh, 45 states have signed on to this, five states have not. The uh, It's being administered through FEMA, which is part of the uh, Department of Homeland Security. And uh, it's retroactive back to August 1st for those who were unemployed at the time of August 1st. And so you should be able to get an additional 400 if the state kicks in their part or, all, or else most states are just doing the $300 a week from the government. You should be able to get that in your unemployment benefits. Um, so that's that's kind of where we're at. It, Trump is trying to go around Congress because Congress is gridlocked. Trump is trying to uh, get money to the unemployed who desperately need it. All right. And then, um, you know, I think part of the challenge that that we face is that, you know, FEMA is already a little bit overwhelmed in terms of the responsibilities that they have responding right now, um, not only to uh, fires in the West and victims of those uh, fires in the West, but also, you know, ongoing um, relief from the derecho in in Iowa, ongoing relief related to um, hurricanes in in Louisiana and points north. Um and, you know, frankly, you know, just to be perfectly fair here, you know, FEMA through HUD hasn't actually delivered on the money to rebuild houses in Puerto Rico or even in uh, in Louisiana from hurricanes that came through three years ago. And so I do think that um, it's it's always interesting to task a part of the federal government that is proven to be slow in the delivery of resources with something as emergent as I need it this week. So it'll be interesting to see. I mean, it's going to be interesting to see if the system can do this. I don't think so. I, you know, honestly, I think our government is so big that it's really difficult for them to succeed uh, in terms of agility. Now, Mm -hmm. you know, if you want, if you want them to collect money and write checks, the government is very good at that. But if you need them to be agile, 
uh, and be Johnny on the spot with aid and that kind of thing, I'm not sure that our federal government is set up for that as much. Well, and let me ask this. Um, is it your perception that states are in any uh, way, shape or form prepared to kick in 25 percent of this? You know, they should be because that 25 percent is coming from uh, 80 billion out of the original CARES Act, which is still mm. unspent, which has already been allocated to the states. I think what they've done, though, is that they've the, the governors have redirected those monies elsewhere. And now they're saying that they don't have any money. Uh, what what Trump is asking the governors to do is to redirect that money back to unemployment. And the governors, I think, are loath to do that because then they would have to pull from from uh, from something else in their state. Look, the, these are trade-off decisions, right? Whenever mm-hmm. you say yes to one thing, you always say no to somebody else. And the governors, I think, are loath to say no to somebody else in order to put money back into the uh, unemployment coffers there. All right. And then we've also got a challenge that most states – don't have computer systems that, you know, can right? their systems just aren't set up for this. Like, OK, we're going to draw this much from here and this much from here and we're going to aggregate it together and we're going to get it to this person in this way on this, you know, for this period of time. Yeah. Talk most about agility. Can... I mean, that's that gets back to your agility, your agility conversation. I, I'm, I'm scared to think of how many states are still on the old mainframes and green screens, to be honest with mm-hmm. you. Mm-hmm. I'm serious. Mm-hmm. I'm serious about that. So, All right. And yeah. then, of course, there's going to be people who are going to say that that's that there's just that's just not enough money. And it's not uh, this 44 billion that, that Trump has has allocated out of uh, some unspent monies uh, from HUD for FEMA, or not HUD, but Homeland Security for FEMA. Uh, that's only going to last about 10 weeks uh, at best. It might only last about eight weeks. Look, there's there's 14 million people unemployed right now at 300 bucks a week. That's only going to last about uh, 10, maybe 11 weeks at the most. And since it's retroactive to August 1st, you've got August, September, maybe the first half of October, and then that money runs out. And so, um, you know, there's this this coronavirus is really sapping a lot of money. And it's not like there's money sitting in the bank, Carmen. All we're doing is all the Treasury is doing is going out and borrowing this money. And so future generations eventually are going to have to pay this all back in one way or another. So again, we're 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 spending money that we don't have to support people who desperately need it. And it's it's a difficult place to be. It is. Absolutely. All right. Bill English and I are going to take a very brief break. When we come back, we're going to um, we're going to talk about another executive order from President Trump. And this is on payroll tax deferment. That conversation in just a moment. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. You say come to All right, I'm continuing my conversation with Bill English from BibleandBusiness.com. This next conversation is for those of you who are employers, but it's also for those of you who are employees who might um, might communicate to your employer how you feel about uh, the payroll tax deferment option that is available to employers uh, between now and the end of the year. All right, tell us uh, tell us what this executive order provides for. So, uh, yeah, it is an executive order. uh, And basically what Trump said in the order is that employers can elect to not pay the federal payroll taxes for their employers for the months of December or September through December of this year. In other words, the federal payroll taxes would be deferred. Uh, 
the flip side of that is that in January through April of next year, the employers not only have to withhold the regular payroll taxes for their employers, but they also or employees, but they also have to withhold the September through December payroll taxes as well. So there's a double withholding in uh, in uh, uh, January through April. So the net effect is that employees would get larger than normal checks if the employers choose to do this, larger than normal checks uh, for the months of September through December of this year. And then next year, in January through April, they would get smaller than normal checks. And and I don't know how Trump thinks that's a, that's a help to anybody. We looked at this in the business that I'm running, and we chose not to do this because we don't think it's right to mess with the cash flow of our employees, to give them more money now just so we can take it away in the next four mo- in the first four months of next year. So we, we chose not to do this. It is an option. It is not a mandate. So let's just let's just repeat the part where if my employer decides they're going to participate in this, I am going to get a larger than normal. Let's say I normally get 100 bucks. Right. Then instead, I'm going to get 110 bucks. Right. But in January, I'm not only not going to get that extra 10 bucks, I'm going to have to start. I'm going to have to pay the part that they didn't collect this time around. So I'm going to get 90 bucks. Right. It is a deferment of payroll taxes. It is not a forgiveness. Yeah, that is bananas. And that is a bad idea. It is a bad idea. Everybody's going to not everybody's going to be upset about that come January one. And you know what? Yeah. yeah. And so if you quit on December 31st, Mm-hmm. The employer still has to pay your payroll taxes January through April they do. next year. Yeah, of course so, they do. And yeah, I, yeah. Mm-hmm. Not a good idea. No. In okay. my estimation. Let's uh, let's talk about something else. So you and I have yeah. a few minutes here. Um, there's a lot of people that have really reached the stage of discouragement in terms That's of true. just the rea- the work realities or the lack of work that so. Just speak a little bit to the the way people are feeling right now about their value, their purpose, their opportunities, all of those things. Because I think that it's important for people to recognize that although we are not what we do, we all do recognize that work has a purpose that is sometimes more personal than we think about. So your value is not in your work, although work does give you dignity and it, and it gives you purpose. But your value to the kingdom is not found in your vocational career. Your value to God is found in your ability to lean into his heart, understand his heart, and be willing to move out in a way that God can say, ah, man, I can, I can direct my servant here to go do A, B, or C because they are in concert with me. They are in communion with me. Um, that once once you once you start to divorce yourself from the notion that your value is found in your career and your work, and is rather found uh, in the fact that His image is within you, and that as you lean into His heart. Uh, you you become a, a steward of whatever it is that he wants to entrust to you, uh, then your value becomes more, uh, I don't know how I say this, eternal and more transcendent than your work and your career. 
easy for me to say this, right? Because I'm employed, but I have been unemployed. I have been in places where um, I didn't know how I was going to pay for the next meal, let alone the next car payment or the next mortgage. So I get where unemployed uh, people are coming from. Um, two, two thoughts, two verses come to mind, Carmen. One is uh, the first part of James 1, consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds because you know that the testing of your faith. So unemployment is about testing your faith. And then Ephesians 2.10, God is, you know, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has prepared in advance for us to do. Right now, your unemployment is partially is God working on you to get you ready for the next stage. There's something about this dry season that he needs to build into you to get you ready for the next stage. And uh, easy for me to say, I get that, but these are these are two truths that that I think you can hang on to. I think one of the um, maybe heart concerns that I have are for people who, you know, this is the unexpected, unwelcome reality, and the terrain has changed a lot since the last time they looked for a job, and. The opportunities that are out there are very different. What are some things that people could be doing right now um, instead of uh, binging Netflix? Um, what are some things that people could be doing with all of this, quote unquote, idle time that might prepare them for the job that's out there that right now is both unknown to them and for which they are not quite uh, ready? Yeah, first of all, let's let's remember that God rarely moves us without first making us uncomfortable, okay? Mm. Yeah, you have you to be know, uprooted before you can be transplanted, right? The uprooting is terrible. See, that it is. It's not a lot mm-hmm. of fun. But yeah. you're absolutely right. Right. Look, what 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 can you be doing? You can go back to school. Uh, you can start networking. Get out and meet people. Usually the best jobs are rarely advertised. A lot of times they are found through networking as employers meet you and they they take a look at your persona and they say, oh, this person will be great for solving this problem in my business. And I don't have a position open for that, but I'll create one uh, because I'm going to I'm going to combine a couple of things and turn it into a position because this person could do it really well. So get out and network. Lots of coffee. Uh, share people, share with people your history, your story, uh, what you can do, what you're interested in doing. I would also say um, consider starting your own business. The church desperately needs more business owners who are committed to, to bringing kingdom principles uh, into their business and to seeing their business as a way to further God's kingdom. So uh, networking, going to school, um, Considering starting your own business, uh, all of those things are are things that you can be doing to get ready for the next stage. All right, let me encourage you. You could always uh, reach out to uh, a person in your congregation who you know is accomplished in business and say, "Hey, I have got um, I've got idle time, but I don't want to be an idle person." Maybe you could teach me the things that you know about uh, about owning a business. I respect you. I have a lot of. Uh, I have noted these things about you. I have observed these things positively. Um, And in that way, you develop uh, a significant relationship with another person in your church, and you cultivate uh, a knowledge base that you don't currently have, uh, maybe about business or starting a business or operating a business. 
Um, and potentially that then grows into uh, relationships with others who might have a job opportunity for you, or maybe that person would help you in your effort to to start your own business, just in terms of even good counsel, right? We all need that. All right, Bill English, thank you as always so much. You guys can find Bill at BibleandBusiness.com. Have a good All right, we have talked frequently. Uh, well, first of all, let me just pause and say I'm in relationship to the point that John Stone Street was just making there on Breakpoint. Um, if you missed the conversation that I had here about the Uyghurs, um, the conversation I had with Travis Wusso, you can go to myfaithradio.com and grab that podcast. Um, if you don't understand what is happening uh, with the Uyghur population in the Xinjiang province of China, um, there is a lot of information available, and you should know about it. Um, and and then once knowing, we should all do something. We should do what's in our capacity to do. And obviously, not watching a particular movie um, is one thing that we could tangibly do. But there are other things as well, including member, including encouraging our particular members of Congress um, to pass the uh, the forced labor bill. Um, that would keep China in the hot seat in relationship to their treatment of the Uyghurs. All right. Next up, I'm going to have a conversation with Melinda Joy Mingo. Each and every one of us um, recognize the value of every other human being. We don't want to express uh, explicit or even implicit bias based on the color of another person's skin or their uh, nation of origin or the circumstances of of their life. We want to treat people with the full dignity of their humanity as fellow image bearers of the living God. And yet we don't always do that. And so uh, Melinda Joy Mingo is actually an expert in this uh, in this realm of conversation, creating connections between culture and identity and helping people in communities actually live like we all aspire to live, which is in robust relationship with one another across every cultural divide. Um, And she joins me next, her new book, The Colors of Culture. We'll be right back. When forced to stand at the crossroads of belief and unbelief, God's people choose belief. This is Max Locato. God's people risk believing Nowhere is this better exemplified than in Joshua's story. You could argue that the central message of the book of Joshua is this headline. God keeps his promises. Trust him. Three times he declares God did what he said he would do. The Lord gave all he had sworn to give. The Lord gave rest according to all he had sworn to their fathers. Not a word failed of any good thing which the Lord had spoken all came to pass. Learn from Joshua. Take a risk. Believe in God. He will do what he has said he will do. This is Max Lucado. Melinda Joy Mingo. All right. I have so many things that I want to say about her and introduce her as um, professor, cultural capacity expert, author, 
But because she's an entrepreneur based in Colorado Springs, I'm actually going to start with a question about the weather. So, Melinda Joy, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thanks for having me. Okay, so <laughs> over the weekend... In Colorado Springs, 94, 98, 93 on Labor Day. Today, high of 41 and snowing. Yes, snowing and at least eight inches of snow as well. <laughs> it's bananas. That is crazy. I, I know. I know. It's the life in Colorado. It's the life of Colorado. Yeah, because, I mean, it was literally 100 degrees, and then it dropped, 30, it dropped to 38 in one day, 24 hours. Yeah, I think I'm not going to complain about the weather where I live ever again. There you go. No, don't complain. Don't complain, Carmen. (laughs) So um, let's talk, first of all, cultural capacity, right? So when you and I, um, we're going to talk about your brand new book, The Colors of Culture, The Beauty of Diverse Friendships. And first of all, I'm going to let you pronounce the word that's at the center of the conversation because I don't want to mispronounce it. It starts with Mm -hmm. a U. Yes, the word is Ubuntu. And it's, uh, it derives from South Africa, and the word itself just means, uh, the phrase is, I am because we are, and it just speaks to humanity, community, and how we learn to love each other. Ubuntu. Do I have it? Yes. My cre- Ubuntu. Yes, you do. So this is a beautiful concept, and as mm. I, I think that as we talk about Ubuntu, and you cast a vision for it. And I'm going to invite you to tell the story that sort of first captured your attention in relationship to it. Um, This is completely contrary to the I'm going to go get mine first uh, Mm. approach to life. And so I think that it's such a contrary way of even thinking about our human relationships. It's so contrary to the very first story that we learn about Cain and Abel. And Mm. so And so if you can sort of reset us and restart us, what is Ubuntu in terms of like, tell us the story that first caught your attention related to it? Sure, absolutely. So I grew up in inner city Chicago. And um, one of the things that I was just so mindful of, I grew up in a a project in Chicago called Cabrini Green, a very well-known project there. And we were always, those of us who lived there, we were kind of always told, oh my gosh, you're on the wrong side of the track. You're never going to make it in life, et cetera. But one of the things that I began to notice early on in life was how we always came together to try to help each other, whether it was a cup of sugar or, hey, I, I need bus fare or whatever. So it captured my attention that we so divide ourselves all the time when really there's a layer of humanity that we tend to not quite get. And so I spent six years in Hanoi, Vietnam. I was invited over uh, to Hanoi to teach at Hanoi International University. And while I was there, the concept of Ubuntu really began to capture my heart of how I connected with the people in Vietnam, didn't know the language, I had never seen them. I was the only black woman walking the streets of Hanoi, but... I learned how to have things in common with people that I normally would not. So there are other places in the world um, where we experience this, we're exposed to this, and it's very different than the experiences we have here in the United States. I'm thinking about sitting down at a table um, in a rooftop restaurant in, uh, in Israel where one common plate is placed on the table and there are no utensils. Like, 
So yes. you're going to we're going to all now that is extremely di- that is just very different than most experiences that we have here in the United States in terms of walking into a restaurant and mm-hmm. what's going to happen when we sit down. We're each going to order our own thing and it's going to be put in front of us. And, you know, if if your fork starts to come over into my area, you know, you're likely yeah. to get stabbed. So I know. Right? OK, yeah. so. Okay, so this way of thinking actually is pervasive. We have become so individualistic in the, in, in the way we think about almost everything that this Ubuntu concept is, is actually foreign to us. It is in, in so many ways. However, it's interesting as I began to think about being here um, just in the United States. And one of the things that I've seen is um, and I'll use, for example, one of the things I've seen is how we actually do come together in many ways, and we don't really think about it. I was parked um, in a huge parking lot um, outside of a, a big store, and there were so many spaces around me where someone could have gone and parked. They pulled right up beside me in this big parking lot and parked, and I was so baffled. I thought about that. And then the same day, I went to a restaurant, and there were all these tables that were empty. This was before social distancing, and everybody began to come over to the side where I was sitting. And so I honestly, intrinsically believe that people really are trying to find commonalities. They're trying to find space with people, but we continually see in our world a divided society, or we don't take um, the first step of intentionality to have these kind of communities um, with each other. Well, that's what you really encourage us to do um, in this book. The book is The Colors of Culture, The Beauty of Diverse Friendships. I do have copies to give away. If you're already intrigued, um, then go ahead and text the word book to 877-933-2484. Melinda Joy, Mingo, and I are going to continue this conversation in just a moment. We make a miracle walk, a promise keeper, light in the darkness. My God, that is who you are. I am talking with Melinda Joy Mingo. The book is The Colors of Culture. The Beauty of Diverse Friendships. We've talked about the concept of uh, Ubuntu. It's actually um, going to build our capacity to think of ourselves as a part of a whole versus just thinking of ourselves as individuals, but recognizing that we are each an integral part of the body. Now, for Christians, this should not be foreign concept, right? We each recognize that although we're unique, we are each and every one a part of the body of Christ. Uh, We are individually members of it. Also, for those of us who break a piece of bread off of a common loaf and share it together, this this should not be a foreign concept to us. The meal that I have at the Lord's table is is the meal that it is, not just because of Jesus' sacrifice for me, but because of every person in every place at every point in time of human history that has partaken of the same meal. We are then part and parcel of one another. Melinda Joy Mingo, talk with us a little bit about um, how we go from recognizing that every other human being is is equally an image bearer of the living God um, to the place where I actually have the kind of relationship with another person that I understand their story well enough to no longer be afraid of them. Yes, I believe, first of all, I love to bring God, I love bringing God into the conversation. 
And one of the things that I truly believe is that we have to step out of the of being fearful of each other. And as believers, I think about Jesus and, and how he related to people. I mean, we see him sitting at the tables and eating with people and reclining more than anything. And what I do believe is when we think about the value, worth, and dignity of every person, then instead of just looking at uh, external things, what they have, their lifestyle, what they've said, um, I believe that we begin to look at people through the same eyes that Jesus would look through them. It doesn't mean that we accept or believe or validate everything they're doing. But when I think about value, worth, and dignity, I really believe that looking at a person, whether they're homeless or whether they're wealthy, I believe a homeless and wealthy person can sit at a table together because we lean into each other's stories. When we lean into the stories of others, that means that we can find places of commonality, whether it's through pain, whether it's through joy, um, any of those things. But we lean into the stories. We become we become um, active learners and listeners with each other. We 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 practice empathetic. Um, understanding and compassion, because until we actually begin to see ourselves, number one, um, as valuable and, and having worth, then it's, it becomes a little difficult to see others that way. But I just, again, believe that as a believer, bringing Jesus and, and letting the God story unfold and unveil is how we begin to lean into stories of others. So part of your um, approach um, is getting people in a room together where you just kind of openly talk about things. Um, That's not happening a whole lot right now under COVID. But um, can you share sort of an experience where maybe you've been in a room where people from a wide diversity of backgrounds or worldviews comes together and by moving through a process, you're actually like able to help them see one another, hear one another, and then move into the potential of intentional relationships? Yes, I'll just, um, I'm a professor. And one of the things that I've noticed in my classrooms over the years is, of course, um, we have our tables or desks uh, in such a fashion where students come in and look at the back of the heads of someone else. And so I'm very intentional in every one of my classrooms to set up a learning environment where students, whether it's through activities or whatever. And so, for example, I um, I do teach law, um, uh, employment law. And uh, as we were going through case studies about what's happening in society, uh, some of the racial tension, all of that, um, one man, uh, he was in the military, and he looked at someone across the room and said, he's a thug. Just said it right in the middle of class. So I said, okay, this is going to be very tense, but perhaps great learning moment. And so I was able to bring kind of an understanding of that and, and this person uh, saying that, I don't know why I blurted that out. So here's what I believe, that when we're in rooms or whether, whether it's a room, whether it's sitting out somewhere, whatever, wherever it may be, I believe that people come a lot of times with preconceived notions, stereotypes, any of that um, about others, and that when we begin to, again, become active participants and listeners and leaning 
into other people's stories and lives. That's how we get to know each other. Uh, we will never get to know each other through superficial means, what we see on TV, um, any of that. We only get to know people when we press heart to heart into learning about them. One of my favorite quotes is, there is no comfort when we are in a place of growth. And there will never be any growth if we choose to remain in a place of comfort. And I, I would add to that another story. I'm a trainer for law enforcement uh, in my city and state uh, police department and sheriff's department. I do diversity community relations training. And so bringing people who are in law enforcement together in a room to do a training, whether it's called diversity, anti-bias or whatever, there's immediately the tension of what's going on in society. Here's a black woman standing in front of them. They're not knowing what they're going to receive. But I actively believe that there's something intrinsically amazing about allowing people, putting, allowing them to just lean into their stories, hear each other's stories. And people are amazed. Oh, my gosh. I never would have thought that we had so many similarities. I never would have thought, you know, listening to your story of pain, I can resonate with it. So... I just believe, again, that it's when we intentionally allow ourselves to be in places that might feel uncomfortable, but we go in there as a learner. So, Melinda Joy, um, I have like a thousand questions that I want to ask you, but some of which I'm avoiding um, because uh, I have I have read. Uh, let's see. I was going to read it back to you because I thought it was kind of funny. Um, uh uh, I don't want to be expected to be the spokesperson for the entire black culture or other ethnic communities. And so, see, I don't want to ask you questions that would put you in a position to be a spokesperson for such things. So here's what I really like about um, well, the book is excellent. And so let me just say to listeners right now, oh. if you're the person who's been wondering, how do I get to the next place? How do I get to the next place in my own spiritual and relational development so that I can get over asking the same questions over and over again related to race in the in our culture or in relationship to my relationships with people who are culturally different than myself. If you're ready to take the next step, this is an excellent book. It's just an excellent book. And what I love about it is it's so conversational. It feels like we're sitting down having that latte and then that awkward silence. So the book is the colors of culture, the beauty of diverse friendships, and I have copies to give away. So if this is a book you want and need, um, go ahead and text the word book to 877-933-2484. Um, Melinda Joy, I would be a person who would love to sit down and have that latte with you and um, would would want to just talk about, you know, the the weather outside and the beauty of the scenery and the cruise that we might take together as friends. We are just at, at this awkward place in our culture where even people with whom we with whom we have been friends for a very, very long time, but whose skin color is different than ours are having a hard time talking to each other. Yes. It's weird. Yeah. It, it is, but I'm also very, well, first of all, thank you so much. I want to just say thank you for um, just that wonderful um, kind of endorsement there of the book. I would say, though, I'm very hopeful. And I know a lot of people are just looking and saying, oh, my gosh, 
Um, are we ever going to just see where people learn to just do life together? And so I see that a lot because in our city, in Colorado Springs, we are very intentional about building community. I mean, we we have a group here, for instance, called Food for Thought, and we just bring food and we allow people in the city to sit around tables outside, long tables and with civil discourse, and we just talk about real life. And so I am very hopeful because, again, we, we, we tend to spend a lot of time looking at our skin color, racial stuff. And uh, my friends who, who will say, well, Melinda Joy, I, I feel that now I'm not a person of color, and I actually feel that that I'm just kind of looked at as a problem, you know? And I said, well, you know, you have to realize this here. You have to be okay with who you are. And and people will not get to know you except through something they've seen or whatever. But when a person really gets to know you, they will totally, truly understand who you are. But, but again, when people say, well, I'm colorblind, so I don't see color. And I said, well, you don't have to be colorblind. I totally get the concept of it. The concept is that I don't connect with people according to the color of their skin, which is excellent. But the reality is that you don't have, you do see color. You do see color of flowers. You do choose certain things based based on how they look, but that is not the end of how we connect with people. And I just think of this, Carmen, that you and I, so we're, we're on a call together. We've never met each other, but I'm sure, I, I am 100% sure that if you and I met together, and sat down over our lattes, with our lattes, whatever, I know we will connect and we would allow oh, ourselves. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely See? instant friends. Hey, we got to leave it right there. We literally have five seconds left. You guys have a great day and God bless. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.